You are listening to Primary Care Perspectives, a podcast where pediatric experts from Children's Hospital of Philadelphia and other guests discuss primary care issues that are on their minds and the hot topics that all pediatricians see affecting their daily practice. This podcast is for general informational and educational purposes only and is not to be considered as medical advice for any particular patient. Clinicians must rely on their own informed clinical judgment in making recommendations to their patients. Hi, I'm Dr. Katie Lockwood, a primary care pediatrician at Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, and today I'm talking about poetry and health equity. Joining me is Dr. Irene Matthew, who's an academic pediatrician, writer, educator, and public health researcher. Her work focuses on teaching health equity through the medical humanities. She is the author of multiple award-winning books of poetry, and she holds a BA in international relations from the College of William and Mary, an MD from Vanderbilt University, and completed her residency at CHOP. She is currently a candidate for a master's degree in public health at the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health, and she's an assistant professor of pediatrics at the University of Virginia. Welcome, Dr. Matthew. Thank you, Katie. It's great to be here. So I said we're talking about poetry and health equity, and we're doing this in the context of narrative medicine. So can you help us get started by defining what is narrative medicine? Sure. So narrative medicine is close reading of literature and reflective writing in the context of medical education with the goal of improving physician competencies around empathy, compassion, and narrative competence. And Rita Sharon, who's sort of the mother of narrative medicine, defines narrative competence as the ability to acknowledge, absorb, interpret, and act on the stories and plights of others. So it really impacts the way that we relate to our patients, the way we relate to ourselves, and the way we relate to our colleagues and the broader society. And the stories we tell can be really powerful tools for illustrating experiences and building empathy and teaching others. So what are the unique properties of poetry as a narrative medicine tool? Sure. So poetry, if you've any of you have ever read a poem, is sort of a strange medium. Um, Poems use language in ways that are quite bizarre and different from the way that we normally use language in our everyday prose, and even in short stories and novels and essays. And I think that strangeness of the language in poetry really offers us an opportunity to approach a situation with that beginner's mind and to try to understand something that is very foreign to us at first. Arno Kumagai, who is a medical humanities scholar, talks about the idea of making strange. And he wrote in one of his papers that he uses the arts to, quote, disrupt the automaticity of thinking in order to discover new ways of perceiving and being in the world. And I think that because poems in general are strange, they are really an ideal tool for us to disrupt that automaticity and to think about alternatives of understanding the world and relating to our patients. Mm, It really does slow you down when you're trying to think about a poem and what it means, right? And like you said, it it disrupts that kind Mm -hmm. of quick thinking that we can rush to. Absolutely. And so is there evidence of how narrative medicine impacts medical education? Yes, there is. And much of the evidence centers on looking at outcomes such as empathy, tolerance for ambiguity, wisdom and emotional appraisal, self-efficacy, and then burnout and other symptoms of um, negative symptoms of medical education that we sometimes see in trainees. And across the board, the evidence that we do have in both experimental, quasi-experimental and observational studies shows that trainees from a med student level up through residency level really have positive outcomes correlated with participating in narrative medicine programs. And 
this comes from literature in multiple countries, not just the United States. Right now, the literature is not quite as robust as it could be because there is a variety of study approaches. And so you can imagine a retrospective observational study is going to have a lot of self-selection bias or recall bias. But the experimental studies that do exist do show that students who participate in these programs have positive benefits. And what we haven't been able to show so far is really how that translates into patient care in the long term, which I think is one of the next big steps in looking at how narrative medicine impacts the practice of medicine. Yeah, that's one of the things that I think all medical educators are working on is demonstrating how we ultimately impact patient outcomes. Mm -hmm. Let's shift a little bit because we were talking initially about how you use poetry to teach health equity. So how can narrative medicine and poetry in particular frame how we teach medical students and residents about health equity? Right. So I'll just start by throwing another concept out there. This is also from Arno Kumaga and his colleagues. And he talked about the idea of critical consciousness, which involves reflecting on the power, privilege, and inequities embedded in social relationships with an active commitment to social justice. And so that's this understanding that if social determinants of health are human-made, then we can also dismantle them through our efforts. And that part of our job as educators is to teach physicians in training to really have that critically conscious social justice approach to everything we do. And not necessarily because every student is going to go out and become a health policy expert, but because even in those relational moments between physician and patient or physician and colleague, every relationship has a power differential. And so better understanding those power dynamics will allow us to relate to our patients better. And if you think about it, medicine at its core is really a relational discipline. It's It works when we have good rapport and constructive relationships in order to really reach a therapeutic outcome. And so it's really important for us to train physicians who understand those relationships and can sort of ameliorate or mitigate the power differentials. And not just the power differentials, but also the experiences that our patients have that may be totally different from anything we can experience or even anything we can imagine and how those experiences may shape their health, their illness, and their perceptions of the healthcare system. Mm, that's interesting. And you told me a story in thinking about power differentials about a patient you saw during residency after the mother refused a male resident. So what did you learn from this experience about patient experiences and trauma-informed care? Mm-hmm. So in trauma-informed care, we talk a lot about shifting from this mindset of what is wrong with you to what happened to you. And the power of this is really the acknowledgement that people have a variety of behaviors and reactions to situations. And we can't always know why people are reacting the way that we do. But on some level, we have to acknowledge or assume that most people are acting in a way that seems rational to them, informed by past experiences. And most people who do something or act in a way that we find off-putting or alienating isn't necessarily an attempt to be malicious or to push us away, but it may be a very reasonable response for them based on things they've been through. And in that case, you know, it really involved us just having the generosity of imagination to understand that there may be reasons why this mother doesn't want a male physician examining her daughter that we have no idea and we're not going to necessarily figure out today, but we have to be able to imagine the possible reasons why this is the case and honor her request because it is reasonable for her, even if it doesn't make much sense to us. And I think that narrative medicine and just the practice of reading 
widely and deeply and listening widely and deeply sort of practices that imagination muscle, if you will, so that we can make those those quick adjustments and manage our own emotions when we're met with a situation where it seems like there's animosity between us and the patient. Iren, I could have you teach me about this forever, but I really want to get into an example of a poem maybe that you've used to teach about health equity. Sure. Notes on the State of Virginia 2 by Sophia Sinclair. February, I am an open wound, woman discarded and woman emerging, scars devising scars. To live here, we know precisely how to be haunted. Sundown sun, a sterile sky come running, sweet gallow grass whistling, ghosts. All year we learn that chainsaw hymnal, outside the lawn, another excavation, slave quarters found concealed in the student dorms, buried rooms choked, sounds bricked off. Two centuries thorns may break sudden bloom. What can we say? No one speaks of it. I dream pristine. And skirting the caution tape instead, we clasp hands with each other in complicity. Somewhere, the ghost arm of history still throttling me. Taste of old blood on the wind. The crouched statue of Sacagawea shrouded behind the pioneers. Creature of unbelonging. Unname this new silence. Magnolia explosion. It's Leviathan shade. Then fall. What sick messiah. Fall, I am coughing in the aisles again, where bare triage of voices pour molasses in my ear, where a bald insurrection of tongues, then squashed rebellion, scrutiny, indoctrination. To live here, we know precisely how to be hunted. So that poem is by Sophia Sinclair, and I love using it in my work here in Charlottesville because it's quite regionally specific. So Sophia Sinclair did her Master of Fine Arts in Poetry here at the University of Virginia, and that poem, for anyone who's not been to Charlottesville, refers to the lawn, which is this big sort of grassy area we have in the central part of campus. And a few years ago, there was an archaeological excavation that was done in some of the dorms that line the lawn, which are known as these very prestigious dorms that seniors can, I think they apply to live in them on the lawn. And they're very old. They're part of the original foundation of the university's structure. And they did this excavation and found evidence of enslaved people in the land sort of underneath. And so it really is about approaching a space that some people have one perception of and having a very different experience of that space. And I should say for background, Sophia Sinclair is originally from Jamaica and she identifies as a black woman. And so having that identity and that history and approaching this space that is sort of regionally colloquially known as this very beautiful, pristine, collegiate kind of storybook brochure cover space 
to realize what also is contained in that space really illustrates, I think, for the reader how places can have very different meanings for different people. And I think that's really important for physicians because we are so used to our medical spaces, and many of which are on university campuses or in cities that have a history that goes far beyond our presence in those spaces. And to be a little more aware of how those spaces trigger things for other people, I think is really, really important. And not just the history of that space, but also being in a medical setting in general, right? For us, we take it for granted, but for many patients, it's a very foreign experience to come into a hospital or even to come into clinic when they only come once a year or hardly ever. And to have to navigate that system can be very, very foreign when, and we take that so much for granted. So that's why I love using that poem to kind of illustrate how what Sophia does so well, I think, is use the language to defamiliarize us and to create these sort of visceral images of strangeness and discomfort that mirror that discomfort of being in a space that feels problematic or triggering. Yeah, that was a beautiful example. And I think it reminded me of a local playground where my kids play that they found was over top a burial ground Um, that's one of the oldest burial grounds for Black Philadelphians. And there was a lot of controversy in the community about what to do with renovating that playground when they found that it was over the sacred space. So it was really interesting to see how a community approaches that. I just saw a lot of parallels in the poem. And I think it's really interesting how you're using poetry in this kind of medical context to teach students. But for many of us, who haven't studied poetry in a long time. Can you walk us through a little bit about how you teach dissecting a poem? Sure. And I think the first thing that I tell people is you have to unlearn whatever you remember from 11th grade English class, because (laughs) many of us in, in high school were taught that poems are these these secrets that you have to decipher. And the point is to figure out what it means and that there's one true meaning. And if you figure it out, then you've won the poem. And often the poems that, you know, at least when I was coming through high school that we were reading were predominantly written by men, often men who were writing in a form of English that is not how we currently speak. And that in and of itself was a very alienating experience for me and for a lot of my classmates. And so what I tell people is there are only two rules in poetry. The first one is that the I in the poem, so the speaker who says, I did this or I saw that, is not necessarily the poet. So we should never assume that that is the poet speaking, but we call that person in the poem, that main character, the speaker. And the second poem is that anything goes, literally anything goes. And this is important because there isn't one right meaning or one specific interpretation. A poem is really an experience and I call it a multi-sensory mini story. So it's not just about conveying a particular meaning, but it's also about creating an experience for the reader. And so poems involve imagery, as you heard in that poem by Sophia Sinclair, there's really beautiful visual imagery, but there's also sort of sensory visceral imagery Poems may evoke smells and tastes and sounds. They may bring in different elements of time. We may kind of travel through time as we did in that Sophia Sinclair poem from 200 years ago to the present day. And within that, there may be a narrative that we can pull out or there may be certain meanings we can evoke, but the purpose is really to experience the poem and see how it feels when you read it or hear it read. And so what I what I often recommend is that people just start by asking themselves a series of questions about the poem. So the first one could just be, 
what do you notice about this poem? What grabs your attention first? Is there a line or a word or a phrase that makes you stop and go back and read it again? And if so, why is that? What is happening there that is making you pause? And then you can ask yourself other questions such as, you know, what's challenging about this poem? Is there a place where the poet lost you a little bit and you weren't sure what was happening? And why is that? And, you know, what kinds of metaphors or images is this poet using? And why are they choosing the words that they're they're using to convey certain things? Why are they choosing other words? Are there any words that you don't know the meaning of? And if so, go look them up, kind of see what the possible meanings are and how that changes your experience of the poem. And to me, that's a pretty solid way to start when you have no idea what's happening, or even when you have a sense of what's happening, because a series of questions like that can really help you dig into the poem in a way that we often don't do when we just sort of skim it and then move on. So that's what I would recommend. I love those rules because it makes it feel like poetry is a little bit more accessible. Mm -hmm. And I think like you said, in 11th grade English, that's not how poetry felt to everybody. So I like that. And much of what you've been teaching us illustrates how powerful language can be. And I know that we've both probably witnessed trainees who speak harshly of themselves. So what advice can you offer physicians about how we can use narrative medicine to foster some self-compassion? Sure. So I think just like poetry and literature give us different types of language to understand and describe things about other people's experiences. They can give us different types of language to understand things about ourselves. And kind of going back to that trauma-informed care question that you asked me, you know, we can shift from a narrative of what's wrong with me or what have I done that's not good to what's happening here? What is good? What can I what can I learn from this situation? And sort of just changing the language that we use in our own heads can really manifest a change in behavior and a change in sort of the level of self-compassion that we need to have for ourselves as and, and our trainees in particular as they learn medicine. I like to talk about cognitive behavioral therapy and how I think, you know, what we're doing here is we're intervening at the level of where language becomes thoughts. And if you think about that CBT triangle, it's like thoughts, emotions, behaviors. And so if we can intervene at the level of thoughts and change how we think about things, then we can change how we feel about things. And that trickles down to changes in behavior and how we treat ourselves and how we treat other people. So I think language and sort of that practice of retraining language and the automatic thoughts that we might have about situations is really, really powerful. That's all great advice. So can you help us practice some of the concepts that we just discussed? Absolutely. When I talk about this with students and trainees, I like to give people writing prompts because as we talked about, narrative medicine is not just about close reading, but it's also about reflective writing. So I'll just leave you with a writing prompt and you can write this on your own time when you have a moment. So I want you to just think about a recent difficult rotation, shift, or clinic day. And then think about in retrospect, what was the best part of that time? What do you remember as the brightest spot in that day or that shift? And then write a poem about the rotation or the shift or the day that centers the best part, but really try to focus on making it a multi-sensory mini story. So it can be a story, you can include some narrative elements, but try to invoke all five senses in the images and the metaphors that you use to really bring the reader into that experience of your day and particularly the best part of that experience. 
Great. I love that as a homework assignment for listeners. <laughs> so what's one takeaway that you want the pediatricians listening to remember from this? Because we've covered so many important topics, but really we've just been scratching the surface. But I want to just highlight one thing that we should remember, and then we can all go learn more after this. Well, I think that it's really important for us to just remember to have that beginner's mind and not be afraid to make things strange. I know that not everyone likes poetry or literature, and so it may not be that you go out and buy 10 books of poetry and read them, but maybe you go look at an art museum online, I guess these days, and you look at works of art that you aren't familiar with, and you try to ask yourself the same series of questions. Or maybe you read a novel or listen to a piece of music that's unlike anything you've ever heard. And I think that part of what can help us combat burnout and stress, but also just make us better physicians in the way that we approach our patients is to give ourselves opportunities to have that beginner's mind and to engage with works of art and to do things that are unlike anything we've ever seen or done before and to not be intimidated by that stepping out of that comfort zone, but to look at it as an opportunity to sort of reset the automatic patterns that we so often get into. So I just want to invite everyone to maybe do that this week. Find a poem or a story or a piece of art or a piece of music and just experience it and preferably something that's very different from what you would normally take in or consume. Great advice. And you have many poetry books out there that are available to listeners. So where can they find you online? The best way to find everything is my website, which is www.irenmatthieu.com. So that's I-R-E-N-E-M-A-T-H-I-E-U.com. That has links to my books, as well as to pieces that I've written more about this topic and lists of tips that I have for medical professionals who want to get into reading or writing poetry. I've written a few essays about that, which you can find on my website as well. Great. Thank you so much for starting us on this journey today. And I really appreciate the work that you're doing down in Virginia. We miss you at CHOP, but I'm so glad that we can connect virtually like this. Thanks for having me, Katie. I really miss you all too. And I appreciate the great foundation that started all of this at CHOP. So thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Primary Care Perspectives. You can download and subscribe to future episodes on iTunes or visit chop.edu slash PCP podcast for a listing of all episodes. I look forward to our next chat.